Well, good morning. Welcome to everyone here at Carney E. Free. It's so great to be with you on this rainy day. We welcome you here in the auditorium as well as in the venue. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free Church and uh, really delighted that you have chosen to be with us today. If you are a newcomer here at Carney E. Free Church, want to give a couple really quick announcements for, for you. One is immediately after our second service today at roughly 12.15 to 12.30, after our second service, we'll have a lunch on us right in the lobby area, and it'll be clearly marked out there. So if you've been new here in the past couple months and you would like to get to know some of the ministries that occur in this church as well as meet some of our pastors and ministry staff, we would love to meet you and you came on the right day. Get free lunch. So even if you haven't had a chance to sign up for that, we'll have plenty of food. We'd love for you to join us out there at lunch on us at about 1230. As well, whether you're a newcomer or a regular, well, we would invite you to fill out this communication card. Let us know if your communication has changed at any time. We will not spam your inbox, but we would love to know how to pray for you. And if there are any questions about our church that we can answer for you, please let us know that on this tear-off portion. You can bring that to one of the communication card boxes at the back of the venue or the auditorium or at the information table. Right now, I'm going to invite Pastor Brian Klein up with me. And uh, Brian, so good to see you in this wonderful Columbia shirt. Hola. Hola. <laughs> but Brian has learned Spanish because he was in Columbia for one week. That's my one word. There you go. And if you believe that, I have some beachside property to sell you as well. <laughs> well, um, we wanted to take a moment here with Brian to uh, give a quick update on what's going on with our partnership in and around Magange, Colombia, along with Compassion International. And we had a team that was there in the Magange region for a um, better part of a week, for about a week here. Yep just uh, maybe six weeks ago, and we haven't yet had a chance to give a really good update, so we want to do that today, and then also we'll tell you about something that's coming to tomorrow. But Brian, could you share with the church uh, who went on this trip, and what was the response of uh, the people in Columbia that you got to meet, some of our sponsored kids and other families? What was the response when you got there? Well, Adrian, uh, it was uh, quite an experience for our team of 18 mm. uh, that uh, was able to go this summer uh, from Kearney all the way to Magange, uh, Colombia. And um, one of the things that we really wanted to do is we really wanted to develop a long-term sustaining partnership in a, in a place internationally where we could continue to come alongside and love and support. But we also wanted to be able to provided for everybody from all generational levels, from the children all the way to our senior adults, to uh, be able to participate in this and have some ownership into what's going on in Colombia and know someone. For instance, here is Sandra, our little girl. Um, Sandra um, Melina Morales Garcia. And I've uh, been able to get to know her. But we had a team of 18 go. And my heart's desire was that it would be not just one generation age group that would go, but it would be a multi-generational group. And God did such a marvelous job with that because we had uh, everywhere, anyone from uh, a freshman in high school 
uh, families together, all the way up to 70 years of, of age uh, that uh, went, and just God just blessed our lives. And when we arrived there in Magange, and we turned that corner, and we turned the corner down the street, and we knew we were going to be greeted, but we didn't know we were going to be greeted in the way that we were. And uh, it, you'll hear more about that uh, maybe tomorrow night, but uh, it was impactful and in such a way that it just still stirs my heart um, today and what that experience was like. We were loved. There was joy that you could just see it in the kids' eyes, in the, in the adults, everyone. They were so excited to have us come and, and uh, for them to meet their sponsors um, and uh, for us to partner with them in, in that way. So it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Wonderful. This is a big piece of our Carney to the World initiative in our five-year strategic plan. So, Brian, can you share with us as it relates to that five-year strategic plan and the Carney to World initiative, what is next in terms of our partnership with Compassion International and then the church plant, Child Development Center, that we are hoping to start in the Magange region. Yeah. Well, what is next is that we had opportunity to meet with Pastor Serpa and Pastor Ben. And uh, Pastor Ben is a new church planting pastor that Compassion has uh, teamed up with. And we were able to meet with him that week. And really, um, we really gelled. We really connected well with Pastor Ben. And uh, so... What is coming up next is being able to, to provide a place of worship for another, for another community of, of kids. And uh, what really impacted us the most was when we showed up in Magange, we were able to see that they had this beautiful place to worship, but they also had a school that provided them education, but also not only education, but provided them a meal a day, which we ate the same meal they ate, and we... We were satisfied to the full. And, uh, um, and then they were also receiving medical care. And so the next step is really teaming up with Pastor Ben, being able to raise uh, uh, $80,000 that would help provide a building where they can worship together in this community and they can also provide education and also teaching and um, give medical care for them as well. So. We're excited about that, and hopefully, maybe by the time we go in early spring, we can see part of that construction already taking place. Sweet. So the next trip is one. Next trip is May 24th to June 1st. We just locked it down just this past week, and we are opening this up to about 30 people. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, we took 18 this last time. We wanted to keep it kind of small since it was our first trip. We really feel like this is a great opportunity for uh, all ages, from 13 on up, to be able to come enjoy uh, a time together, eight days there, and uh, be able to experience what God's doing there in Colombia. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so for those in the audience today in the venue who would like to learn more about this partnership and what we're doing with Compassion and the child sponsorship that we're doing with 360 kids, uh, what's an opportunity to learn a little bit more? Well, tomorrow night, uh, uh, October 1st, Monday night, 6.30 in the North Auditorium, we are going to have what we call Stepped Into Their Shoes, and uh, where we have gone in, we've kind of visited their homes, you're going to hear testimony 
from the team that went, but also you're going to see Eric, our, our tech guy, our video guy, went with us, and he, he did an awesome job of really compiling about a 10-minute video that's going to give you a real good sense of what it was like to be there in uh, Magange that week. So show up tomorrow night, 6.30. It'll be about an hour, and then we're going to have an opportunity for you to write letters to your, to your kiddos if you are sponsoring a, a child. And uh, that should get to them by Christmas time, hopefully, by the time they get done translated. So, All right. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's take a moment to pray for Pastor Brian and the Global Outreach Team and Pastor Ben, this pastor, Pastor Benjamin, that we are partnering with in the Magange region to start a child development center and a church there. Would you join me? Father, thank you for uh, this wonderful partnership. I just praise you, Lord, the way it's developed with our Global Outreach Team over these past couple of years. Uh, Nate Miles and, and Brian and that entire team has done such a fantastic job leading us to this point. And we're grateful, Lord, to have this new mission to Columbia that is developed in such a beautiful, organic, and yet very, very well-organized way. And uh, pray, God, that you continue to grant wisdom to that outreach team as they lead us. Pray for those who might consider going on this trip in the future. And for all of the 360 kids that we are sponsoring, bless those kids. Give them all they need, even today. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that we learn from them. And we pray for Pastor Serpa, who's uh, kind of a leader there of pastors, and for Pastor Benjamin, as he's going to be taking his very first church. Mm. And uh, we ask God that you would excite him, and you would empower him for his great ministry to a very needy area that is desperate fought for the gospel and desperate fought for the hope of Christ. How grateful we are to learn from him, to learn from them. This is a two-way street. Yeah. And we pray, God, that you empower him for his ministry his family, for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. Well, I think that's kind of cool. How about you? Yeah. You know, a few years ago, that's probably five, six years ago now, I was sitting at a stoplight and kind of fiddling around my radio at the stoplight, and I looked up, and in front of me was this golden driving machine called a Jaguar. And I've always kind of liked Jaguars. And so I was admiring that golden driving machine, and felt a little bit of covetousness rising in my belly. And then I looked more carefully, and around the license plate was one of those license plate holders. You know what I'm talking about? But this license plate holder was unique. I'd never seen anything like it before. It said, in Berkshire Hathaway, I trust. So Berkshire Hathaway, you probably know, is a company owned by Warren Buffett out of Omaha. And uh, it's one of the wealthiest companies in the world. Uh, its stock currently trades, I believe, at $330,000 a share. To which I'm no longer thinking about that Jaguar. And I'm starting to think, man, I wouldn't mind a stock or two of Berkshire Hathaway to put my trust into. And I've remembered that over the years, not because there's anything wrong with owning a Jaguar, 
Not because there's anything wrong with owning some Brookshire Hathaway if you can get it. Um, I didn't know the stranger really needed to tell me about his stock portfolio while I was sitting at the traffic light, but, you know. I remember it all these years later because that little license plate holder was so incredibly symbolic for the way we all are tempted to put our trust in certain treasures. It's symbolic of the way we tend to think about the treasures that we have here on this earth, whatever they might be for you and me. This morning we have a little treasure box back here. I'm not sure what treasures would be in your specific treasure box, but if you're anything like me, for some of us, our primary treasure is our time. That we just feel like it's so fleeting. And we can never get enough of it. And it feels like it's sifting through this hourglass and one day it's going to be gone and I can't quite grasp it. Anyone else in this room? I mean, this is a treasure for me. And I struggle with it when I feel like people are stealing the little grains of sand in my hourglass. For others of us, perhaps our primary treasure is our power. <clears throat> I got all kinds of great props from my elementary school age kids. Incredible Hulk power, which I have a lot of, as you can tell. And, and you know, like, whatever your power is, we all have a certain amount of power in this world. We all have a certain amount of influence. We all have a domain of responsibility. We all have a sphere where we get things done, where we have ownership, where what we want done happens. And for some of us, that's our greatest power, is I'm able to have authority here, whatever it is, and, and you've got to steward that power that you've been given. We all have different power. But for most of us, when we think of treasures, what do we think of? I heard a little kid say a bank, and he was right. For most of us, well, we think of our piggy banks or our checkbooks or our credit cards or our 401ks or our Berkshire Hathaway, don't we? For most of us, this is what we think of when we consider the treasures that we own, and if we're not careful, the way the various treasures that we own can end up taking ownership for us. We all have a relationship with each of those treasures, don't we? Like, like we'd be fooling ourselves to say we don't have a relationship with those treasures. We all have some kind of way of interacting with our various treasures, of, of fearing them, of feeling a level of anxiety toward them, of relating to them. And we don't tend to think of our treasures that way, but, but we do. We have a relationship with our treasures. We're talking about, if you're new here though this morning, if you haven't been with us the past several weeks, we're talking about in this series is equipped to lead. And I'm firmly convinced that my primary role at this church is to help equip you to lead in your areas of ministry and perhaps in your most important relationships as well. And we all have many very, very important relationships 
First and foremost, we talked about in the, this series, we have a vertical relationship with God. And to stay equipped constantly to, uh, to tend to that relationship with God such that it is strong is the most important thing we can do. And we have relationship with our kids and with our grandkids, and we get to tend to those, and, and we need to be equipped to lead, to be the spiritual leaders for our kids and our grandkids. We talked about that in this series. We talked about our future together, where we're going as a church in the coming years, and how we all have a part in that. And next week, well, we're going to be talking about our romantic relationships, whether you're married or unmarried, and how God would equip us to lead in that incredibly important relationship. You're not going to want to miss that one. But today we're going to talk about the priority of equipping ourselves to lead in a God-honoring way with the treasures that He has given us. Now, tell me here, let's be honest. On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you when your church begins to talk about money? Okay, any tens in this room? Raise them high. Okay, I see a couple. I'm not sure if I, okay. Scale of one to ten, how excited? I don't see anyone in the venue raising their hand right now. No one's a ten. Any ones in this room? Let's be honest. When my church talks about money, it feels like a one out of ten to me. It's like, like the least favorite thing for me to talk about. I see a few hands, uh, a handful of people walking out of this room right now. Those are negative fives. Those are the negative fives. I and mean, that's the way a lot of us feel when we talk about money, no matter the context. And can I tell you, it's true for me too. Like, I don't like talking about this subject. It's way down at the bottom. It's a one for me or a negative. I, you know, I don't care to talk about this subject. As you get to know me, for those of you who have gotten to know me, I'm a pretty simple person. I am not motivated by money. I've never been motivated by money or stuff. I'm motivated by other things, and I have issues there. But I've never been motivated by this. But even though I do not like talking about this, this is where Jesus challenges me. And perhaps you as well. Jesus talks about this subject all the time. It's stunning to me as I read the Gospels of Jesus he talks about money perhaps more than any other subject with the possible exception of heaven. And that's possible. Maybe not even that more than money. And the Bible talks about it over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture are conversations about this treasure. Why is that? I think it's because all of us will have to define our relationship with it. You remember that term, DTR, define the relationship? We gotta define what our relationship with money, with treasures, is going to look like. And I think the Bible talks about it this much because all of us are anxious about it. Everybody that I've ever met is anxious in one way or another about keeping what they have or the thought of losing well what they have. It's a universal. And no matter what your religious belief is today, no matter what you've been taught by, by your parents, everyone has a philosophy related to finances. For some of us, a de facto philosophy, but we all have some kind of philosophy for how we relate to money and the things that it buys. And perhaps most importantly, I think the Bible speaks about this subject so much because it, perhaps more than any other variable, is the acid test of where we put our trust. 
me say that again. This variable, perhaps more than any other one, is the acid test for where we actually put our trust. Here's a principle that you've got to be sure that you hold on to from today's message. You may not be able to quote this entire principle well when this message is done, but, but I pray that you're able to understand the, the idea but behind this principle. There's two different ways though, that we can look at our finances. One is a love of my money, and when you think of it as your money, as your treasures, or any of these treasures, my time, my power, a love of my treasures, and a love of my money, my treasures, tends to do this. You'll see this up on the screen. It tends to harden us to God and people. When we think of it as mine, it tends to harden us to what God wants done in the world and to the needs of people around us. But if we have a stewardship mentality that we think of it as God's resources, God's treasures, what inevitably ends up happening in you and me is a change in mindset that it no longer hardens us to God's purposes in the world and to the needs of people. What it does is it excites us. It excites us for what God wants done in the world. It excites us for the possibility that we have to take part in his great mission to the world. Again, there's these two basic postures through which, well, we can look at our treasures. One of them is like this. The other one, of course, is like this. This one, it's mine, and I have a poverty mentality, and better nobody take nothing or ask nothing from this because it's mine. This one is, God, you decide to put some in my hand. You are so generous to put some into my hand, and I get to be a steward. I get to be a manager. I get to be a developer of all that you have made and all that you have given for your honor. You see, what the Bible teaches is that God is the owner of all. He is the sovereign ruler of all. He is the creator of all. And when you think about the cattle and the corn and the oil and the gold and the rubies and the diamonds, God made them all. When you think about the intelligence uh, that he has given us, the strength uh, that he has given us, even the gift of family uh, that we have, those things did not come from us. They come from him. He's the owner. He's the sovereign. He is the giver of them all, and we are the mere stewards of them. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Deuteronomy 8, but because it reminds you to just keep on giving thanks. And there's a line in Deuteronomy 8 that says, when you enter into the land that was promised to you and your forefathers, you'll be tempted to forget what God has done for you. And you'll be tempted to say, my money, my strength, my wisdom, my intelligence has produced all this wealth for me. But God says, don't do that. He says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the ability to produce wealth in the first time, in the first place. He is the owner, we are the managers. We, we all agree on that? He's the owner, we are the stewards. And what that means is God in his generosity gives us much. And he gives different to different people, but he gives us much, and we get to use a lot of that for our own enjoyment and for our own sustenance. 
which we give thanks to God. And we get to use some of it for our own security in the future. But I am firmly convinced that God wants us to use more of it for his glory. You use some of it for our own enjoyment, some of it for our security, and more of it, Adrian, for his glory. It's about stewardship. I love the way the parable of the talents puts it, and we won't go deep into this passage, but it goes to this idea of ownership and stewardship. Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. Okay, the man going on a long trip, spoiler alert, is God. Okay, a man going on a long trip, and he called together his servants, and he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one. He gave two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities, and then he left on his trip. From which we get that principle that I just taught, that God is the owner of it all, and he gives some to us that we are entrusted to manage, to steward, then he goes away on a very long trip. And after a few decades, he comes to each one of us and he says, how did you do with what I loaned you? That's what he says. And then he gives it to someone else after we die, right? To state the most obvious pun in the world, the most obvious cliche in the world, you can't take it with you. You can't, you know? So he loans it to us for a short time. He says, what do you do with it as you manage it? And then after a few short decades, I'm coming back to you as the owner and I'm going to ask, how did you do stewarding well, what I had entrusted to you? Now, what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time here, though, this morning is talking about three great benefits that come to us as a result of taking a stewardship mentality in our relation to our treasures as opposed to an ownership mentality as we relate to our treasures. Now, when you live as an open-handed steward with your treasures, well, with your money, with your time, with your power, you live an open-handed relationship with that, the number one thing, though, that it does for each of us is it protects our souls. An open-handed relationship with money has a way of protecting our souls from the vicious power of money. It's out of love, it's out of the purpose of protection for us that Jesus insists early on in his public ministry within the Sermon on the Mount, he insists no man or woman can serve two masters. It's just impossible to do, he says. We, we can't serve both God and money. He says you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You literally cannot serve both God and money. Do you notice in that passage that he doesn't say you shouldn't serve God and money? That's not what he says. He says it can't be done. Oh, well, I, I know many people who try, you say. Yeah, I know many people who try too, and I've tried too, but it can't be done. Because money is so powerful that it situates itself in our lives to be like a rival God for us. And some of us are feeling kind of anxious right now. Some of us are feeling frustrated even right now because you realize that it's become almost a rival God for you. And even the thought that I'm going to stand up here on stage and talk about it frustrates 
because it has this way of nestling into our souls and becoming that from which we take our security instead of taking our security from God. Isn't that so? This is the power of finances. Now, when it becomes our, our, our God, when, when, when money becomes our God, the Bible says that we fall into a trap, and that's when money is a root of all kinds of evil in our lives, and the evil that comes into our lives typically are things like discontent and covetousness, materialism, and anxiety. That when money becomes God in our lives, those things tend to proliferate in our hearts. But money, you see, in God's design, as he is the owner and we are the stewards, money is a terrific servant for our lives, but it's a terrible master for our lives. You hear me? It's a terrific servant but it's a terrible master. When it's a master, we end up constantly feeling stressed, never quite content. I love the way the great steel magnet William Vanderbilt, back in the roaring 1920s, put it. He was worth $200 million back then, which would be the equivalent of several billion dollars today. And he said, the care of 200 million is too great a load for any back or brain to bear. There is no pleasure in it. To which I'm kind of like, well, Mr. Vanderbilt, I wouldn't mind giving it a try. Anyone else? Like, I wouldn't mind trying. But it just has a way of being like an albatross around the neck. The care of it, the intensity of concern, when it takes too great a role in our lives, it becomes a terrible master for us. I, I, um, I talk to couples regularly about all different kinds of things, and one of the things that I regularly end up talking to couples about, especially before marriage, is finances. And inevitably, in our culture today, couples bring a whole lot of debt into marriage. Not always, but many, many times, couples bring a whole lot of debt into marriage. So usually well, when I'm talking with couples about finances, it's talking about debt. And they come, and they oftentimes feel like it's this, this albatross, these shackles around them. It's become a master, and they wish they weren't there. And so for some of us today, as well, we think about God's design that an open-handed relationship well, with money would protect our souls, it's this commitment to get out of debt. Like, there's many people that I have talked to who really want to be more generous to charitable causes, want to be more generous to mission in the world, more generous to their church, but they feel like they can't because they're in such deep debt. You see, our country has gotten into this habit on a governmental level and on a personal level of spending way beyond our means and then getting way in over our heads. And so what we need to commit to oftentimes is this. Here is the line for my lifestyle. Here is my income and here is the line for my lifestyle and I commit to living way beneath my means, even if that means I'm going to live a more simple lifestyle than many of my peers. That's what the greatest generation in America did. And that's what we need to get back to, learning to live beneath our means. Because the simple fact is, Solomon was spot on all of those centuries before when he said, the borrower is a slave to the lender. 
And I've met with too many people over the years that at such a young age have these shackles around their neck called credit card debt and wedding ring debt and appliance debt and car debt and all these things that previous generations in America knew you should save up before you buy that. We need to get back to that. That will free you to get back to this place of contentment that I can live with simplicity. Simplicity is a wonderful gift from God. To live with simplicity frees us. It protects our souls. It helps us more than some of us even know here this morning. It is God's design. Friends, this is exactly why. This is exactly why we are endeavoring upon this capital opportunity. We have a $1.6 million capital campaign that's going on right now, and if you haven't yet picked up this brochure, I'd encourage you to do so out at the journey wall or the information table today. But $1.6 million campaign, and over two-thirds of it, $1.1 million of that is purely to debt reduction. That's it. It's not a glitzy campaign. It's removing debt so that we can do more. Like, imagine if we could remove $200,000 of servicing debt per year, which is what we currently do, and redirect that to youth ministries, redirect that to global outreach, redirect that to local outreach. Wow, how much more what we can do for the kingdom. God be praised. The church gets stronger when we get out of debt. And so it is true in the home. The home gets stronger. Shackles are removed when we get out of debt. When we live with an open hand before God, a commitment to simplicity before God, that I I don't need to hold on to so much stuff. I live simply before God. It actually serves to protect our souls. And then an open-handed relationship with money inspires Christ-like joy. An open-handed relationship with money inspires Christ-like joy. Did you know, my friends, that God delights in you? He does. He personally delights in you by name. I imagine his delight in us as much like your delight over, over your kids or your sponsored kids or whoever it might be that is special and is younger than you in your life. You delight in them for their accomplishments, for sure. Like you, you delight in them in their music and their academic accomplishments and their sports skills and all of that. But even more basic than that, don't we delight in our kids simply because they are? Anyone else? We delight in our kids not so much because of what they do. We delight in our kids because of who they are. That they are delights our hearts, and so what do we do? We give to them, and that's a good thing. We lavish gifts upon them because we delight in them, especially if you're grandma and grandpa. We delight to give to our kids. Now, hear me. That we are, that you are, delights the heart of God. Not so much what you do, simply that you are delights the heart of God, and so he lavishes gifts upon us. Listen to this glorious passage, 2 Corinthians 8 9. This is what we just sang about. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich unto God. This is the joyous generosity of God that though we were poor, he became poor for us. He left heaven's glory. He paid it all to pay our debt and bring us to him. Through his poverty, we now become rich unto God. You see, people who live like this, they tend not to understand the inspirational, excited generosity of God. Let me say it again. When you live like this, you tend not to understand the generosity of God to give up heaven's riches, heaven's glory, heaven's gold to come down and become one of us. And we tend instead when we live like this to suffer from diseases like materialism and discontent and affluenza. But when we live like this, we are inspired by Christ-like joy. Because he did that for us, and when we live that way, we are operating according to the image in which we were made. There's a gentleman in this church who was baptized about a year ago and became a Christian probably a year and a half ago, and uh, he is a working class man, and he doesn't have experience with what we're talking about today but in the process of coming to this church, he started to learn the joy of generosity. And so he started as a working class construction worker to save his pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters and put them day after day for all of his purchases as he's living on a cash budget, a cash-only budget. Day after day, all of his purchases, sometimes dollar bills as well, put them in this bag that's about this big. And after a few months of doing that, he brought his offering, his sacrifice to this church, and it wouldn't exactly fit in those little bags that go through the rows. And so in the most discreet manner, he pulled me aside and brought it to me and said, this is my sacrifice for the church. This is what I want to give to the church. I've been saving this up for the past months and I'm so excited to share this with you. Not looking for any applause, simply learning the beauty of what the Bible explicitly states. Acts 20, it is more blessed. Say this with me. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, isn't that true? I saw in that man's face a smile that went from ear to ear as he learned the joy of generosity for the very first time. It is more blessed, it's more happy. That word is makarios in the Greek. Makarios in the Greek simply means happy. It's more happy to give than it is to receive. And we all know that. We've had to be on both sides of that. And there's certainly nothing wrong with needing to be a receiver at times, but it's simply more blessed. It's happier to be able to give to what God wants done in the world than it is to receive. We're all going to have to give sacrificially to make this five-year strategic plan a reality. I want you to know that Susie and I are praying about what our sacrificial gift will look like before November 18th, and then also what the sacrificial gifts will look like over the next couple years so that we can be part of making this a reality because we love this church. We want to see this become a reality, and, and we recognize it will require sacrifice, and, and we recognize it will be different for each and every one of us. But I am firmly convinced it's going to take all of us to get to that 1.6 million over the next couple years, each of us are going to have to pray 
about what our sacrifice might look like and ask God, would you bless me even as I give to what you want done here? For some of you, it might be $10 a week, $500 a year. Almost all of us can sacrifice that way. For others of us in this room, it might be $100,000. That might be the sacrifice that as you pray and as you look at your finances, that's what God gives to you to give. We live with an open hand. I never see what anyone gives in this church. I promise you that. I never want to see. I never look at that. That is for someone else, not for me. My simple prayer, my hope is this, that we would all pray about it and perhaps God would excite in some people, even in this room today, to begin giving to to this church for the very first time and as they do, they get to experience the Christ-like joy of generosity. God be praised, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, but God loves and rewards the cheerful and volitional giver. I think the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, put it best well when he noted, the less I spent, the less I spent on myself, and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. That's been my experience. The less I give to myself, the less I spend on myself, and the more I look for what God wants to be done in the world, the fuller of happiness and blessing does my soul become. Christ-like generosity inspires joy. And then finally, living with an open hand toward our finances, toward all of our treasures, it serves to glorify God. It glorifies God. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is probably the most extensive discourse on money in the Bible, specifically as it relates to missions, and we don't have time to get into the weeds on it here this morning, but I would really encourage you, I'd really ask you to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 this week, perhaps even tonight, but before your life group, read it, because it is so powerful for understanding God's heart for missions across the world. And you'll see in it our heart for why we are doing what we are doing in Magange. And in this passage, you have the Apostle Paul who's been wrecked by the generosity of God. He has personally witnessed the resurrection of Christ, and he was a man with great riches, with great resources. And then he said, all that I have, God, is for you. I give it all to you because you have given your all for me. And the next thing he did is he begins launching churches across the, uh, the, 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 the Mediterranean world. As he's launching churches across the Mediterranean world, he's doing some fundraising in the process for other churches though that need to be launched. And there's one particular instance here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where he's imploring a very wealthy church in Corinth to follow through on what they have committed in their finances. And the way he does it is this. It's different than what I would do. <laughs> but the way he does it is this. He says, remember your brothers and sisters of the church in Macedonia. He says, your brothers and, church and sisters, the church in Macedonia, they were poor. They were working class folks, and yet they were eager to give to missions for the world. They were eager to see lives and, tran- and communities transformed by the gospel. And so they gave generously and eagerly, even though they had so little to give. And he uses them as an example, and he says, to my wealthier brothers and sisters in Corinth, would you please give too, as we are seeking to start another church for a very impoverished group of people in the center of Jerusalem. And what you see in this passage is this beautiful portrait of the unity of the body of Christ across races and nationalities and ages and demographics, all for one for the sake of Christ. It's the same kind of thing when we 
a wealthier church, raise money for an impoverished group of people in Magange, Colombia, to be able to get a child development center and a church in their own community. And we do some updates here, and we most importantly retire debt on this facility. But as Paul is um, talking about all of this, he, he talks in verses 19 through 21, which I want to put up on the screen, 19 through 21, about an associate uh, that is working with him in this ministry, and he's praised by each of these three churches for his faithful gospel ministry. And it's very interesting, his mission, his ministry to the church is quite different though, than Paul's and quite different than what we think about when we think about ministry. Look at verse 19 as it speaks about this unknown minister of the gospel who's unknown to us but is known to Paul and the other churches. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 19 to 21, it says this. What is more, this man was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to glorify the Lord himself. To honor the Lord himself, we administer this offering and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any kind of criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. Don't you love that? We want to avoid any kind of criticism on the way we deal with this gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. So this guy is in essence a capital opportunity leader who is an above reproach kind of man who is known for being very careful with his finances. And Paul says we want to be very careful, very wise in how we administer this gift to live above reproach before God and man. He's kind of like uh, Robert Moncrief or Dave Challey. And his ministry is a little bit different than my ministry. But all the same, it says in this passage, he gets to administer this gift for the glory of God. Why do I get into the weeds like that? Of this passage. Because it's such a powerful reminder to me that we are always to live with accountability and openness and be completely above reproach in the way we deal with finances. And I promise you, that is true of every staff person at Efree. I promise you that is true of our elder board. I promise you that is true in how we are handling this capital opportunity because that glorifies God. Generosity given and generosity received the right way glorifies God. So how are you going to glorify God with your money? As we live with an open hand, as we live on a budget and commit ourselves to get out of debt, as we sacrifice some of what we want for what God wants to do in the world, as we commit ourselves to missions, as we live a simple life when other people around us are choosing to live an extravagant life. My friends, by all of those daily decisions, we worship and honor and glorify 
the giver of every good gift. Our choice is one of two postures. It's like this, or it's like this. This is the key. This is an acid test to our faith. And living like this will harden us. I say this to you as a pastor, as your pastor. When we live like this, it will harden you to the needs of people and to the mission of God. When we live like this, it softens us. It excites us to be able to use these little treasures that God has given for the needs of people and for the advancement of his mission in the world. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you that all of what we have just said is rooted in the gospel of Jesus, that you paid it all for us, that though we were poor and you were rich, you chose to become poor for us in order that through your poverty we might become rich to God. And that's true for all of us who have received the free gift of Christ's grace. God, I, I know this topic is not easy for many of us, and we've been taught not to talk about it. But I, for one, thank you, God, that you talk about it a lot because I need your help on it. And I want to be a better steward of what you have given. So, Father, I ask for your help for me and for my family. And I pray the same for my brothers and sisters in this room and in the venue, that you would speak to them. It's your Holy Spirit that cuts. If I've said anything here that is chaff, may it blow to the wind. But if we've spoken here in a way that includes some wheat, would you help us to eat it up and to live out of your word out of your lavish love in Christ Jesus. Would you make us stewards for your honor and your glory. We'll be careful to give you all of the credit, God, not to us, but to you be the glory in Jesus' name.